Hey everybody, this is Nuggets in Verse. I'm your host, Philip Shear. I have long-form conversations with entrepreneurs, athletes, working folks, and anyone with a story to tell. I hope you find your nugget of truth or inspiration in this episode. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest today. Uh, it is Ed Pipagurdis. Am I saying that correct? Pipagurdis. That's Pe- close. Pipagurdis. Okay. Yeah. I I think that I've always said it, Pepagurdis. <laughs> <laughs> I've been called everything. And so I asked Stacy last night, I'm like, am I saying their name correctly? She's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So close, I guess. Um, but Ed is, uh, is in, in my mind, you're... Uh, cycling legend in these parts? Well, I don't know about a legend, but I've ridden a bicycle quite a bit. Yep. So, yeah, would you like to hear how I got started? I would love to hear how you got started. <laughs> well, um, I, w- I was into all kinds of athletics when I was young, and uh, I played basketball. Uh, I played at Graceland on varsity, and uh, and then I, after I became a veterinarian, I had pickup games all over the place, and uh, I was extremely competitive. And uh, I, uh, I could tell you where that comes from, too, if you want. Yeah. Well, uh, when I was uh, two and a half years old, I had rheumatic fever and almost died. And the uh, doctors weren't sure I was going to live or not. And uh, anyway... I eventually pulled through, but I had a murmur on my heart, and they, uh, mom and dad were extremely uh, hovering and covering over me and wouldn't let me do anything like the other kids could do, and uh, this really, really got to me. So uh, when I was in grade school, they were still protecting me, and uh, we had a mile run at uh, as part of physical ed or PE, well, uh, mom and dad gave me a note which said that I was excused from the doctors from doing that mile, so I tore it up, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I went ahead and ran the mile. Not only did I run it, but I won, and uh, I was pretty determined that I was going to do anything that the other kids couldn't do, or that the other kids could do. And uh, now I might have died doing that, but if I would have, I'd have been happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so that was kind of where what instilled that competitive drive in me. And from there, it went through high school. Uh, I was into all kinds of sports. Of course, I went to Stewartsville, which is a little school. I had 22 in my senior class. And so everybody participated in everything or you didn't have enough to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I played football at, at 5'8 and 135 pounds and made uh, 25 tackles one game. And a guy weighed 185 and uh, no surgery later from that and so forth. But basketball was my love back then. And uh, we uh, lost by two points in the finals of the regional my senior year. We had a really good team. But and then uh, I played all those pickup games, and uh, we used to hustle the kids. Uh, a friend of mine, a big guy, he was a rebounder, and I was a shooter. And 
uh, we would take on high school kids and, and whip them and uh, just had a lot of fun doing that. But anyway, after playing racquetball for years and all these kinds of things, uh, I uh, also in Graceland, I dislocated an ankle. And then in a pickup game, I completely dislocated the other one with, you know, complete dislocations. And I developed a lot of arthritis in those ankles. And uh, I had a tendon that slipped out of the groove all the time. So it, and, uh, it got to where racquetball and basketball and those kind of sports, uh, I just really couldn't hardly do them. So it, I was about 40 years old. And uh, one day, I, I'm not the kind of person that sits around. That's just not, not in my genes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I pulled my wife's old swindler. Wish we still had it. It'd be worth some money now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I pulled the old swindler out, and I had, I'd worked construction uh, when I was going to <clears throat> University of Missouri to veterinary school for McMenemy Construction Company, and I had a McMenemy hard hat that they let me keep when I retired or quit the job to go on. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled out that old McMenemy hard hat and put it on. I'm not sure it would have protected me from anything, but and I rode uh, that Swindler about a mile and uh, about killed me. I thought, oh, man, but there was just something about it that I liked. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's that sense of freedom, uh, you know. Uh, so the next day I went out and rode about five miles. And uh, before long I was hooked on cycling because, uh, you know, it didn't hurt the ankles, uh, non-weight bearing. And uh, <clears throat> from there, that was about 40. That's when I started riding uh, seriously and kind of upgraded the bike a little bit and uh, had a Raleigh Kodiak touring bike and, uh, and then I had a Mangusta racing bike and uh, I'd take those things and uh, of course I upgraded my helmet and uh, the way I went. So it was basically the only form of exercise that I could do. Uh, and you know the amazing thing is over the years, it's strengthened those ankles to where they never bother me anymore. Uh, never bother me. And when I was 40 and they were x-rayed, they told me I had 80-year-old ankles. And so I think that's quite an amazing uh, rehab from the bicycle. Uh, and I, I totally give the bicycle credit for it. And uh, so anyway... Then uh, I just started riding, uh, started riding with some groups and uh, started racing a little bit. And uh, basically, bicycling fit my skills uh, because I'm a fairly lightweight guy and I was weighing about 155 pounds and I still do when I get in shape. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a really good strength to weight ratio which is uh, pretty essential on a bike. Plus, I've got really good endurance. Uh, when I was at Graceland, I won the intramural cross-country run with beat 300 guys, and it's not that I'm a great runner. I mean, I'm horrible. I mean, I got a little short, mm-hmm. choppy stride, and uh, uh, 
when you're you're short and bow legged and yeah, you're not a good runner, but not many had more heart than I did mm-hmm. <laughs> because I just refused to lose. And uh, so that's uh, and that's how I got started cycling. Uh, but from there, again, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the competition of it. Uh, I did do some racing. I won a time trial in Chillicothe one time. Uh, a time trial is you against the clock with no drafting or anything, and uh, I was I was third in a criterium at in Kansas City race, uh, where that's just elbow to elbow in a circuit course on several laps. Uh, it started raining, and uh, towards the end we were riding through about three inches of water, and I kind of lost my nerve a little bit on a couple of the corners towards the end and. A couple guys, I was in the lead, and a couple guys passed me. But, uh, you know, I've done some things that probably aren't real smart. <laughs> and Well, in fact, a lot of things. That's pretty much my nature. Mm-hmm. Well, hearing your story about uh, kind of how you described where you got your competitive nature, um, man, uh, I actually don't know that you've told me. Maybe you have, um, but it all kind of makes sense now um, how um, – I've known you to do a lot of things that that maybe are maybe a little ill advised on the bike. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, you, uh, I, I understand now. Well, you know, the when other someone thing, tells you you can't do something. Um, yeah, it you just makes do it. Yep. it just makes me want to do it more. And uh, you know, right? Sometimes I sacrifice a little common sense for the. Uh, for the competitive nature of whatever the challenge is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, went to France about 24 years ago and rode, in, uh, rode the, with a group called Europeds, and we uh, rode in the French Alps during the middle section of the Tour de France. And this was really the highlight of my biking career, to ride to, to climb Alpe d'Huez is kind of... It's kind of the ultimate for a cyclist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was riding, I was 54 years old then, and I was riding with uh, racers that were 30-year-olds. And uh, I trained I trained incredibly hard for that because I wasn't going to embarrass myself over there. And uh, I didn't. I went bottom to top on Alpes without stopping an amazing mountain. And uh, then... We get up there. There's a half a million people on that mountain that day, and they're they've been drinking wine for two weeks. They're happy. They're all cheering for you. They don't care. They don't care if mm-hmm. you're a peon or what you are. They're just cheering for anybody that rides a bike. And uh, then we watched the pros race in the afternoon, which was an amazing experience. Uh, but to get off that mountain, we had to walk down. There were so many people. But one of the best rides of my life at the bottom of that. Uh, I joined up with four other guys, and we rode from the bottom of Alpe d'Huez to Vizel uh, at 34 mile an hour right down the center of the highway. <laughs> you would not dare do that over here in the United States, but the people respect cyclists over there, and they just split and let us mm-hmm. go. And the guys I were with said, oh, come on, they'll get out of our way. So I was a little intimidated by that at first, but... Uh, it was it was a great fun ride and a and a great trip. So, when you watch the uh, Tour of France, 
it almost feels like there's a, uh, it, it's like a, it's like kind of their version of tailgating for football. Um, oh, for sure. I mean, like I said, they've been sitting out there. Some of these people camp out for two weeks waiting on the tour for 10 minutes of action. And they're camping out there and they're drinking wine. And over there, everybody drinks wine. If you don't drink wine, you don't have anything to drink. You have to ask <laughs> for water. <laughs> but they're uh, they're having a great time. And uh, <clears throat> about two hours before the racers come they have a commercial caravan and that commercial caravan is all of the businesses uh aquatil water and uh all kinds of different business and they're they've all got floats and they're driving by and they're throwing trinkets out and the kids are diving for them and it's it's really an amazing atmosphere and then uh as it gets close you'll uh you'll see the helicopters and helicopters are photographing the racers. And I'm telling you, you're standing right there on the road. You, I could have reached out and touched Lance Armstrong then. Mm-hmm. And there's an electricity that goes through that crowd that it just makes your hair stand on edge. It's just an amazing experience. And uh, everybody's cheering, and when they're climbing out the ways, they're trying to run along beside them, and it, it's just incredible. But, yeah, tailgating is a good uh, a good analogy of what's happening there. So Sometimes those spectators get a little too close. <laughs> yeah, they hit a few of them now and then. They knock a racer down occasionally, and uh, I don't know how those guys do it. Their, their focus uh, – and – that's always been one of the things that I've liked about bicycling is the mental focus involved. Um, and when you're racing, especially, if you don't focus mentally, you're going to take everybody down. <laughs> and that's a no-no. You, well, don't, you don't want to do that. I don't want to take anything away from you as a, as a rider, like physically and how skilled of a rider you are. But um, I think what sets you apart is is the, is the mental piece and that probably goes back to when you were oh, two years sure. old right like yeah, for sure and uh kind of just programmed your mind to like that hey i'm gonna get through whatever i'm gonna set out to do that's exactly right and that, that that's where that came from uh i'm convinced that drive and uh and you know like if I'm training for anything, whether it's a race or whether it's an, a ride with my friends, which I do a lot now all over the country, uh, if they ride 100 miles in preparation, I'll ride 150. And that's just the way it is, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm determined to uh, – and sometimes that's almost pathological, uh, <laughs> especially when you get up to the age that I am now uh, – so, but anyway, yeah, that's where the drive uh, came from, and and that drive really has extended to anything. I mean, it's all parts of every part of my life, you know. Uh, I I work just as hard to succeed in no matter what I'm attempting to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard a lot. You know, I've heard from uh, a lot of people say, and I definitely subscribe to this as um, when you do hard things. Um, you can, you know, that translates into all aspects of your life. When you do something really hard and get through it, um, it allows you to keep doing more and more things that are that are difficult. Yeah, I mean, it just becomes a part of you, you know, and almost any, no matter what 
your what aspect of life you're in or what you're attempting. Uh, I mean, I'll hoe weeds in a garden the same way. Whack, whack, whack. You know, I'm going to go after them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the one thing that when I start a job, I can't stand it until it's done, you know. To do a job and to lay it aside and not do it and not get back to it, and that's that's just, I just can't stand that. I want to get it. I want to do it. I want to get it done. So. One of my favorite, uh, when I, uh, I think it was one year before Opawapu, and it was, we, it was going to be, it was going to be really hot out. And, uh, you were doing some heat training and, uh, you, <laughs> yeah. So it's another one of those some things people have that, a sauna. <laughs> yeah. Another one of those things is probably not real smart, but, uh, you're right. I mean, and thank you for the Opawapu experience. I had never ridden gravel, uh, in my life until you guys, uh, set that up and started it. So I thought, well, Hey, it's my hometown. What are you gonna do? I mean, you gotta ride yeah. in your hometown. You can't be a cyclist and not riding. I'd never ridden gravel. I didn't have a gravel bike. I didn't have a clue how to ride gravel. But they didn't stop me. So I get out. I go out and start training. And one of the real problems that I've always had a little bit is I ride by myself most of the time, mm-hmm. and that's kind of dangerous because uh, you're you're pretty vulnerable out there. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you are. And, uh, like, dogs have put me down five times or so. And uh, so I take off training on Opawapu, not having a clue, and somehow I got a front-wheel skid up there on 164th and, and really an easy area to ride <laughs> and looking back on it, I don't know how in the world I did that but I went down and uh, somehow I walked back up the hill the other way and then turned around and walked and I have no recollection of any of that uh, walked up to the corner and you know felt my face and had blood all over and I thought well let's see maybe I better call somebody <laughs> you think Yeah, and my chain was off. I thought, well, how did my chain get off? I didn't throw my chain, you know. And Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's what concussions do to you. Yeah. So I called my wife, and she came and got me and said, you're going to the hospital. I said, no, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm fine. You know how it is. And (laughs) and she said, well, yes, you are. Well, she's rescued me numerous times. But uh, I learned I guess the bottom line, and and the other part of me that's, I have no fear, and I don't know if that's a genetic mishap or what, but I have no fear of getting right back on. Some guys will have PTSD, and after the major wreck, and they can't hardly get back on the bike, you know. But mm-hmm. me, I just climb back on, take off, you know, and uh, so I did that with the Opawapu. I got back on and took off, and as you mentioned, it was really hot. And heat never used to bother me too much. Uh, It's a different story now. But Mm -hmm. um, my doctor is Chris Harlan. He's a cyclist. And Chris was, he had gotten overheated on, I think it was dirty. 
out there in Kansas. And uh, so he wanted to uh, do some heat acclimation. Now, this is from a doctor, so I got mm-hmm. some background here. And uh, he was putting a, a winter jumpsuit on and setting in, a, in, uh, in his uh, bathroom with a heater on and so forth, but it really wasn't that hot in there with all that. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll try that, and I can do better than that. So <laughs> I uh, got a Kubota tractor with a cab, and uh, I, uh, I went out on a day when it was super hot, and sat in the cab of that truck, I mean that tractor. The problem was I didn't just sit there, I was mowing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm running this tractor, and it was it got up to 140 degrees in there. The heat index was over 200. And sweat, I mean to tell you, but they say that if you sweat like that, it will improve your VO2, it will improve your sodium retention ability, and it really improves your heat tolerance. And I totally believe it after doing that. And then now the, the thing I shouldn't have done is dro- driven the tractor while I was doing that because the first time I did it, when I got out, I could hardly walk to the house. <laughs> I, was, I was a little on the dizzy side. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, I did that for several days, and uh, I was going, I think about, I think I went up to an hour in there. And Chris, I mean, Chris is like 42 years old, and he said he couldn't do it over 20 minutes. He said, how in the world do you do that at your age? I mean, I was probably 70 then, you Mm -hmm. know. And I said, well, you got to understand how I grew up. I mean, I grew up on a farm, and that involved putting hay up in hay lofts on some hot summer days. You know, it's probably 140 in those hay lofts. And Dad and the guys, I, farmers I worked for, they'd give you a salt tablet or two. And uh, but you always got watermelon afterwards or whatever, yeah. so life was good. But uh, I think I developed a tolerance when I was a kid. Uh, for that heat by doing, putting up hay in those super hot, humid barns and Missouri weather. So Chris was just stunned that I was, at my age, was able to do that for as long as I did. But I think it really helped. Now, having said that, the last Opawapu, uh, I had to take a did not finish at 60 miles, as you know, and that's the first DNF I had in my entire life from hundreds of events. I had never failed to finish one. A lot of them were really hard events, like Hotter Than Hell in Texas. It was 103 down there that day. And 20-mile-an-hour wind at the end of it, that was a brutal ride. But on the Opal, on that last one, uh, I did overheat. I had what would be called heat exhaustion. I wasn't quite to heat stroke, but... It was heat exhaustion, and I was riding fine after a mechanical cost me an hour and a half, which was a joke, but uh, a tire went bad out there in the middle of nowhere, USA, and they had to bring me a tire. But when I 
got to the sag, I felt pretty good. We filled my water bottles and started walking to uh, the bike. I was going to go on, and all of a sudden, the whole world started spinning. I got dizzy and fell and went down into a chair, and then I had the worst cramp in a hamstring ever. So I had to exercise for the first time in my life, a little better judgment, and and bail out of that one. But And ever since, I really don't tolerate the heat. And I, I think some of that's age, just don't tolerate it like I used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I've told you I had a, a similar experience on Ragbri one year. Where I, um, oh, it was, it, this is a, a really long story that I won't go into, but I, um, on a ragbri, as ragbri goes, I think we stopped at like mile 20 and ate our body weight and pancakes on the side of the road. <laughs> um, one of those places where they, you know, flip them on your plate, even after you're done eating the amount right. that you planned eating. Yeah. And then, uh, so that didn't set me up for success for the day. And, and, uh, it was, crazy hot that day and at one point i uh started having uh started cramping up and i had stopped at a like a roadside gatorade stand that some lady was doing for like boy scouts or something and then all of a sudden i just i realized that i was looking at the sky and this lady was standing over me asking me if i needed an ambulance (laughs) because i had (laughs) i had passed out um from the from the heat and the same thing. And up until that point, like if, if it was a hundred degree day, I'm like, let's go. Like, like I actually felt good riding in the heat. And, uh, now that is not the case. It, I've, it just, yeah. ever since I've not been able to kind of regain that. And I, w- I always wondered if I did like some, like some really intensive heat training. Like if I, if I could build myself back up to that, but I would doubt it. I mean, you know, I'm convinced that I would never get back to that point. Uh, but more, mine's mostly because of age, you know, and those things happen. But, I, you know, I always enjoyed riding in the winter. And everybody else, all my friends, they ride their trainers indoors. and Including me. And that's just dis- <laughs> disgusting. Uh, <laughs> that's not in my uh, repertoire. But, Ed, you can ride Zwift now. Huh? You can ride Zwift now. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, I I I used to ride all the time. I'd ride to work and back uh, all winter. It didn't matter what the weather was. In fact, probably, and here's another one of those not smart things. Uh, I rode one day when uh, the wind chill was 60 below. And the temperature was down to, I think, 15 or 20 below, something like that. So I ride my bike to work. (laughs) I got a lot of looks. But the really dumb thing about that, and I I was okay with the clothing that we have nowadays. I mean, it's a whole lot different when I was a kid, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was okay, but uh, the problem was if I would have gone off and broke an arm or something, I would have gone into hypothermia before I could have even gotten help. And I had a kid working for me one time. Then we were out. I was out suturing up a horse, and it was a brutal, brutal cold day. We were in an open-sided barn, and the kid was uh, handing me instruments as I was sewing this big gash up on the horse's neck. 
And all of a sudden he said, Dr. Ed, I'm in trouble. And I looked at him and his, his hands were contracted, uh, fingers just turning into claws. And the instruments were locked in his fingers he, he, and he couldn't move. I'd never seen hypothermia in action before, but he would have died. And I literally picked him up and carried him. The people weren't home. I carried him to the car, uh, heated that thing up, and immediately took him to the hospital, you know. Mm-hmm. And he he was fine, but it was really a scary moment on what hypothermia can do. So I probably won't ride when it's that cold anymore. But I had to do it just to see if I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, do you know... Uh... Greg Cummins. I don't. Uh, mm, he, um, I've heard the name, but okay. I don't know him well. I'll have him on the podcast at, at some point. Uh, he did a uh, he did a ride in I think Ireland or Scotland, and um, actually got some uh, some some uh, frostbite. Um, and he's he's a, a story that uh, we'll have on the podcast sometime. But yeah, like those those things could happen. Um, in cold weather, and especially if you were to find yourself in a position where you couldn't, you know, protect yourself if you were, um, if if you had a crash or you were, you know, stuck out. Yeah, of that yeah. that would be the bad part of it. Um, you know, when you ride like that, no skin exposed. You know, ski goggles over balaclavas under ski helmets, which are pretty warm things anyway. Mm-hmm. And then layer after layer, and Gore-Tex outer, and I mean, the clothing is pretty amazing. But if you have a problem, uh, you got a real problem. So, and I, I've done a lot of things as a veterinarian. Uh, <clears throat> I started practicing in Excelsior Springs in 1970, and uh, back then we there were no emergency clinics or anything like that. Nowadays, the vets turn their phone off at five o'clock and go home and sit in their easy chair and. We would take calls all night long and then work all day the next day and whatever we had to do because you didn't have emergency clinics. You had to do what you what was called on, mm-hmm. and that was our, my job. Well, I did large animal work back then as well as small, but uh, I had a dairy. You probably heard of it, Seven Hills Dairy. Uh, ben uh, Mook, you know, Ben and Amanda. There I don't, uh, attorneys that live out there now. They used to have a deal in town. Now he has his practice in Kansas City. But um, anyway, Seven Hills Dairy had a, a cow that was having a calf, and she had prolapsed, which is throwing the uterus out on the ground uh, after the calf comes out and uh, lack of ligament structure and uh, the stress of a, of a difficult uh delivery and they can do that well they called me so i went out there and it was another one of those brutal days super cold i went out there the years was froze solid uh still attached to the cow oh my gosh yeah and i thought okay we got a problem here and the the one thing that i loved about being a veterinarian was every day in my life was a different new world Mm-hmm. There were never two days the same, and I liked that. Some people don't like that, but I love that. And uh, so you have to figure out what to do. The, that isn't written up in the books. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so we basically got hot waters and thawed it and everything. And I thought, well, I got two choices. I can amputate it. Uh, if I do that out here, she's probably going to die. So I thought it the best we could. I replaced it back inside of her and sewed her shut. Of course, medicated her up. And that cow survived and had a calf the next year. So it was pretty amazing. That freezing just basically preserved that tissue. And wow. Yeah. I mean, it. I would have never believed it in a million years, but it was a kind of a unique situation. So... And then I had another one, uh, brutal cold. In fact, it was the 23 below, which was uh, the, the coldest record on Missouri on a Christmas Eve a few years ago. And friends of mine that I went to church with uh, called me having a heifer having a calf. I thought, oh, great. You know, I'm not even sure I can get a vehicle started here, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's what we did. So you go. And uh, I went... went uh, over to their place, and I, I went in this cow and, and come out. It was a heifer with a huge calf, and my arms just turned to ice when I come out. But anyway, I got the calf, and I ran. I grabbed the calf up, ran to the house. It was probably uh, maybe 30 yards, and his ears were froze solid the time I got to the house. But... Kef made it. Of course, the cow wouldn't claim him or anything. She was a heifer stressed out of her mind and so forth. But, you know, experiences like that, I've had a million of them. So, but that was a couple of cold weather ones. Mm-hmm. What, uh, you said uh, you grew up in Stewartsville? Yeah. Where, I don't know where Stewartsville is. Stur- Stewartsville. Stewartsville. Yeah, I call it Sturtsville. That's slang. Okay. Yeah, we... <laughs> <laughs> we Sturtsvilleites, we all have our own our own language. Okay. Basically, you know, it's, it's, it's slang for Stewartsville, and uh, it's between Cameron and St. Joe on Thirty Six okay. Highway, about halfway between Cameron and St. Joe. And we grew up on a, or I grew up on a farm there. It's basically, all a farming community, and you know, back then, ever mile you drove in the country there was another farmhouse and all of them had kids every place and uh it's super super sad now i i almost refuse to even go back there because all of those family farms are gone uh they've been dozed down and corporate farmers farm everything They've torn out all the hedgerows. They've torn out all the trees. They farm at greater ditch to greater ditch with chemicals everywhere, and it makes me ill (laughs) Uh, to see what happened to that thriving little... Everybody had small farms back then, Mm -hmm. but us kids couldn't make a living there too, so we all left, and eventually the community just died out as it went to corporate America like everything else. But back then, I went to a little country church full of people, full of kids. It was great. Now there's five people that try to keep the doors open, you know. And uh, But anyway, Sturtsville was, was great. It was a very small community. And I found this quite interesting. Uh, I thought my education was extremely good. I mean, I went from Sturtsville... 
uh, I, I was valedictorian there, but uh, I went from there, and I was kind of nervous to go to college, frankly. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, this is going to be culture shock for this boy, <laughs> little farm boy here in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I competed with kids that went to schools of 3,000 and everything, and I was ahead of most of them academically. The other thing that got my attention was my nephew graduated from Sturzville, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. Sturzville, by the way, is the same size now (laughs) (laughs) as it was back then. How they keep the doors open, I have no idea. Uh It's got to be miraculous leadership to be able to keep it open. But when uh, my nephew graduated, they had the same 20 to 25, whatever, 22 in the senior class. They had nine Bright Flight Scholars. Excelsior Springs that year had two out of 110 graduates. Now, what's that tell you about that middle schools? Yep. I mean, they're not all bad. Well, and like I said, plus you get the experience. I mean, I would have never been able to play football at a big school. I would have never been able to. I played in a band. I was third chair trumpet out of three. I was so bad, the instructor told me to fake it at a concert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I had the experience to be able to try it, to do it, you know. And in big schools, you don't get that. You may you may have to focus on one single thing that you get to do, you know. But at the little school, we did. I sang in the glee club for crying out loud. And again, it was kind of about the same as the trumpet. I was really bad, but uh, you did all those things. Yep, Eric, uh, that was on the last podcast, and uh, um, uh, grew up in Pratt, Kansas, and we we talked about the same thing. How. Um, like I played uh, high school baseball when I was in eighth grade because there was yeah. a there was a shortage of uh, a sh- shortage of kids to play on the high school team and uh, yeah you never you never had to make the team you, like if you wanted to play a sport you were on the team so yeah that's that's the way it was you <laughs> and know. Uh, so and if you fouled out too many in basketball you played with four <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but. We didn't even have baseball there. Uh, we had track, and we had a dirt rectangle track out there. It was a horrible thing <laughs> around the football field. And uh, I ran the 880. It was 880 yards back then instead of meters. And uh, I actually went to state in that and uh, ran at the state meet. But, again, it was strictly on guts. I had no talent. But I... Uh, I used to run to school and home every day, and that was three miles one way. So I would run to school and home uh, just as training for track. So I was pretty aggressive even in in that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, you know, I said my bicycling fit my skills, but I also have really good endurance. And my endurance, even on a bike, I mean, I can ride all day, you know. may not be as fast as some other people, but at the end of the day, I'll be there. So so what, uh, what, so how did you wind up in Excelsior? Um, in Excelsior Springs, I 
never even heard of Excelsior Springs from Stewartsville and knew nothing about it. But I, uh, when I went to vet school, I was deferred from Vietnam uh, because of going to school. And yet my draft number in the little DeKalb County was very, very low. And I was going to go as soon as I graduated from vet school, which was okay. I really didn't mind that. But because I knew that I was going to get drafted, uh, actually it isn't interesting how this affects your, um, your choice of career and everything. You know, when I – and excuse me if I get sidetracked. Oh, no, you're fine. When I uh, was in vet school, I had a research job with Dr. Anthony Kerr from Scotland, and I was doing parathyroidectomies on swine. And I was going to go with him over to Europe and get an advanced degree in nutrition. But Uncle Sam didn't think so. And so I ended up not going – and ended up in practice, but that's basically how I got into practice. My my love really was research, mm-hmm. and even now sometimes I wish that I could have gone into research. But um, anyway, um, I was in the Air Force Reserve. Well, I wasn't in it yet, but I uh, I went out and talked to him at the 442nd at Richard Gebauer which was the Air Force Reserve Unit during Vietnam. And uh, they said, well, uh, we could use a vet, and uh, we might have an opening. Well, it was kind of where I had to pay a bribe. And uh, I had raised a little schnauzer that I had rescued and saved uh, as a three-day-old puppy, and uh, I, the guy wanted a dog, the colonel. I said, well, I got a schnauzer. He said, well, yeah, I'll get you a position if I can have the dog. I know that's bad. I'm not proud of it. But that's basically how I got into the Air Force. Uh, and so I was in uh, the Air Force Reserve. And uh, in the meantime, I set up practice in Excelsior Springs. Well... How come Excelsior? Dr. Bill Soper, I don't know if you knew Dr. Soper. He's passed since. Uh, but he was an a MD of, a, in Excelsior. He was also in the 442nd uh, wing. And uh, we, we talked, you know, there. We were both in the medical wing, and uh, I was a food handler. Basically, I was in charge of training the food handlers, and also inspecting every place that the uh, the troops ate. That's what veterinarians do in the military. I also held clinics and took care of the active duty people's dogs, uh, and that I enjoyed, but the other parts mm-hmm. of it, nah, not so much. But anyway, uh, we were talking, and I said, man, I'm, I'm looking for a place to practice, you know. And I, at the time, I was working in Blue Springs, uh, for a doctor that I worked for on the weekends when I was going to vet school. The, he uh, and Bill Soper said, well, come to Excelsior. We need a vet, you know. We've only got one here, and he's elderly. And so Bill brought me up to Excelsior, and uh, 
I looked around town, and uh, this is one of those things that everything just fell into place, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was halfway between Lee Summit, where my wife's parents live, and my parents in Sturtsville, and far enough from both of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, Bill introduced me to the Risleys, uh, the bankers at that time, and they were super, super nice to me. And uh, Bill Risley said, well, you know, we're getting ready to close out this uh, old Excelsior Institute down here for the SBA. They were closing it down and selling the equipment. And uh, he said, if you need anything, you can come in there and we'll, we'll help you with that. Well, first off, I had no money. <laughs> um and anyway, I went into the Excelsior Institute, and you would not believe. I basically stocked an entire clinic out of super nice stainless steel medical equipment that had been used. I got an x-ray machine. I got an autoclave. I got bone plating equipment. I got stainless steel surgery table. I got all kinds of stainless steel uh, buckets, pans, equipment. And uh, I could have never afforded that stuff, you know. And I got that stuff for just pennies, basically. They were just trying to get rid of it. So, and then uh, looking around, I found uh, the little Carl Wilson's old real estate building out on 69 there. And, uh, well, it was like 900 square feet and, but, you know, pretty creative back then. And mm-hmm. so Pam and I turned that into a clinic, and um, that's where I got started. And I had all that, e- that equipment. And, of course, I outgrew that real rapidly and eventually built out there, which is what I had, you know. I practiced there for um, 40, 45 years or so. The uh, Excelsior Institute that you mentioned, is that the, the building downtown across from other trails that, that actually has the Excelsior Institute sign? I think that is what it was. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is. They were they were closing that down and, you know, it shut it down. I guess it had gone bankrupt after the big boom, mm-hmm. you know, when all of the transients were in Excelsior Springs getting their mineral baths and all that stuff. And, um uh, and so they were, they were shutting it down. The bank was selling equipment out of it. So yeah, uh, I think that is what it was. So yeah, now that I think back on it. All right. So I was gonna switch gears back to cycling a little bit, just because I just remembered a recent cycling story where you did the Mickelson Trail. Yeah. And you had a mishap with your uh, shoe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this, I'm, this I think really like like shines a light on like your like just drive to like get through something no matter what happens because I don't know how many people would have done this. Well, not many. Um, <laughs> and when I go into the bike shop, Biscari's bike shop over in Liberty, when I walk in with some of my problems, they just shake their head, <laughs> and I get this same, you know, hands on the hips, shake their head. And, Say, Ed, it could only happen to you. And uh, 
So anyway, the Mickelson Trail, the gorgeous trail in South Dakota, and we had about, I don't know, six, eight of us that were riding that from here. And uh, the worst part of it was an 11-hour drive to get there, and that I'm really getting tired of, just to ride a bike. But the biking part was great. So anyway, they all aren't quite as hardcore as I am, and uh, they decided that they would, uh, all the rest of them, would uh, take a shuttle. We, we stayed at uh, Hill City, I think it's called. They were going to take a shuttle to the end points, Greenville and Deadwood, and then ride back. So in two days, they would, they would actually do the whole 108 miles. To be fair, I did the same thing when I rode the Mickelson. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got a shuttle back. <laughs> well, me, and that wasn't good enough. If I'm going to drive 11 hours, I'm going to ride it both ways. So I left from Hill City and rode out to Greenwood and then turned around and rode back. So that was a ride. The first was 120 miles the first day, and the second day was uh, 100 miles, and I rode this 108-mile trail. I basically rode 220 miles in those two days. But the first day, Lon rode with me, so we rode out to Greenville, and, man, I'm feeling good. I mean, feeling good. Got that got that juice, got that pep. And uh, so I get down there, and we have a little lunch there at a little diner. And I started walking back to my bike, and I heard something pop in my shoe. Thought, well, that's kind of odd. So I get on, I clip in, and I take off towards the trailhead from the diner. And um, all of a sudden, it's feeling pretty squishy down there. I thought, I better try to unclip from this, or I might wreck out here somewhere. Well, I couldn't get unclipped. So, and I'm, I've always had a really, really bad, bad habit on the bike. I unclip with the left foot before the right one every time. That's not a good habit. You should be able to do it with either foot, yep. you know, equally. And I can't. I just, it's, you know, I'm just programmed that way. And uh, so anyway, I did struggle a little bit, but I got my right foot out, and I stopped. And uh, all of a sudden I realized my left shoe is up around my ankle, and the sole is still attached to the clip, the pedal. So Lon had to help me get off of that thing <laughs> and we the shoe just fell into a heap i mean it was just a pile of debris and scrap but the sole was still intact and it was locked into the pedal mm-hmm. well lon said well we're done man we gotta get a <laughs> shuttle and go back he said and that's i said well lon i didn't come up here <laughs> i didn't come up here to to take a shuttle. I come up here to ride my bike. So I said, I'm going to try this. So I jump on the bike. I put my sock and foot on the pedal that was still attached. I mean, on the sole that was still attached to the pedal. And I rode about a half mile. I thought, yeah, that's not bad. And anyway, long story short, I ended up riding 60 that day and 100 the next day, 160 miles with one shoe. Now, the interesting thing was, and I got along pretty good. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't 
spin as fast a cadence without my foot flying off the pedal. And if I hit major bumps, it would sometimes fly off, but that's no big deal. But it it was an extremely good uh, uh, conversation piece. That's what I mm-hmm. wanted to say. Because I'd come to the trailhead and people look at me and they say, they'd point, you only got one shoe. I said, yeah, you're very observant. (laughs) I got one shoe. And uh, so anyway, uh, I knew better than to try and buy shoes up there because I've got an extremely difficult foot to fit. Uh, Seven and a half double E, uh, extremely wide, very narrow heel and short foot. And I just, I have to buy oversized bike shoes because most of them are European made, which are very narrow shoes and mm-hmm. they just don't fit. And, and if you get an ill fitting shoe on a 100 mile bike ride, you in a heap of trouble. Miserable. But anyway, that's my one shoe adventure. So just to clarify, you wrapped your sock over the, the sole no, of the shoe? Okay. Had my sock on I'm my foot. To... Okay. And I just set it on the. On so, the sole. so like your foot's no longer not attached to the sole. Not you're, attached to you're anything. You're just pushing on it like a yeah, just almost like, like a platform. Or just something. like a platform pedal. Okay. That's what I got out there today. A platform on that BMW bike. Yep. So and mm. you know it sounds awful, but it really wasn't that bad, and it didn't affect the length of my my legs or anything because uh, you know that sock is in that on that sole mm-hmm. anyway. That was just normal position. So. You know, it was more of a comical thing than it really was a problem. What's the uh, what's the most difficult ride you've ever done? Oh, I've had a few of them. Uh, that's a good question. I'm going to have to think a bit. Um, most difficult ride. Do you mean in terrain? Do you mean in uh, physical elements or? I'm going to say terrain. Terrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, terrain. I'm gonna probably say the the uh, Opal Wapu. Okay. No, I'm sure. I'm not surprised that you said that. Actually, uh, on gravel, not really being a good gravel rider, uh, the Opal Wapu was was probably the biggest challenge for me uh, that that I ever did. It was, uh, and plus, it was hot most every time we did it mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I would say the opal would be up there the second one uh, would probably be the six gap in georgia uh, that's eleven thousand two hundred feet of climbing over 102 miles and uh, you're the uh, you're just climbing all day because the descents one descent they offered a shuttle down in case uh, people didn't want to. I said, "Hey, if I'm going to climb these suckers, I'm taking the bike down there. I'm going to get yeah. that free ride." Yep. But one guy did pile it up on one of those descents. I mean, it. Uh, but the descents were so fast that you were just climbing all day, basically. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty brutal one. Uh, I found the ones in Colorado actually fairly easy. Um, you know, triple bypass, and to me that wasn't a, that wasn't a problem at all because half of that's downhill at forty mile or plus mile an hour, mm-hmm. whatever you got the guts to do, and you know the other half those the 
the uh, grade in Colorado on those mountains is not as steep as Six Gap was. Six Gap had some pretty healthy climbs. So, you know, that was that was two. Uh, and I had two more that for elements were just brutal. One of them, amazingly enough, was a tour to Tucson. Uh, I mean, this thing is a Saturday after Thanksgiving or before Thanksgiving. I don't remember which, but Tucson, Arizona. You're thinking, what kind of weather am I going to have? Going to be sunny, going to be beautiful, going to be pretty, going to be a piece of cake. I'm going to leave the cold, old, wet, damp Missouri. I'm going to go down there and enjoy this. Uh, That was another 100-miler. And the day of the ride, that morning, it rained three and a half inches the temperature was 40 degrees, the wind was blowing, and you know how cold that is, damp, cold, rain. Well, those water gaps, there's, there's uh, no culverts down there. They're just kind of washes? Yeah, they're just low gaps. Yeah. And so basically, I rode through water that was clear up over my my sh- shoe, and you have no idea what was under you. You just ride by feel and hope you keep it upright or you're going to take a bath. And that I never have seen so many flat tires on a ride in my entire life. It was worse than those cactus needles onto the road, and I flatted with about 10 miles to go. My hands were so cold, so wet, damp, and cold it was a super struggle to change a tire, and then I only had just soft, mushy tire, and I wanted a gold medal on that ride, and you had to do it under six hours to get a gold medal. And that flat tire cost me 20 minutes, and I missed a gold medal by five minutes. Oh. Yeah, by five <laughs> minutes, I did 625, and I was really hot because I would have made it if I hadn't have flatted, but it was a brutal ride. And, of course, hotter than hell, it was 103 down there in Texas that day. And I was riding with a group of riders, really good riders. And we averaged 20 miles an hour for 80 miles. And then the last 20, we went into a 25-mile-an-hour headwind. And I'm telling you, that group fell apart. (laughs) Worse than any group I've ever seen fall Mm -hmm. apart. Guys were dying and we were drinking pickle juice and everything else under the sun to try to, oh. And uh, with a mile to go, I, there was a little hill before you dropped down into the finish line. I cramped in both hamstrings at the same time. First time in my life I ever cramped. And it totally locked my legs up. I couldn't even get out of my clips, and I wrecked on the side of the road. I did, you know, I couldn't get out of my clips. And then I... Finally got out and staggered to the top of the hill and coasted down the finish line. But uh, that's off my bucket list. I ain't never going back down <laughs> to that place. It's nothing but a desert anyway. So, oh, uh, well. And I, I mean, I've had a lot of rides yeah. like that. Louisville, Kansas, my son and I were riding. He used to ride with me a lot, you know. Had a 100-miler down there and. Uh, Lewisburg, Kansas, out around through there. And, it, again, it was another day where it was like 
low, low 40, high 30, rain, drizzling, wind, and nobody was really prepared for that kind of weather. And uh, my son just, he got hypothermic and had to, had to sag in. And, well, I'm, you know, I never even believed in sagging and, until the opal. But anyway, mm. I, uh, I kept hammering. Well, then about 80-mile mark, the guy I was with, a uh, dog took him out. And he broke his collarbone. Oh, no. And, well, I had to stay with him. I mean, I put every coat I had on him and everything to try to keep him warm until I got help, medical help there in an ambulance. And so the time they got there, I am so far behind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm about into the next day, you know. But, by gosh, I finished it. <laughs> of course you did. Yeah. So, anyway, that's just a few <clears throat> of them. So... You have a uh, you have a workout here in town that uh, has been named the Ed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> thanks to your wife. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Ed. Uh, uh, there's there's some uh, difference of opinion in exactly how far the Ed goes, but the Ed starts at the Dairy Bee. and well, actually, the Ed it starts at my house. I just live south off of. Uh-huh. Like, uh, County Line Road. So I ride from home down to the Dairy Bee. That's two and a half miles. I just walked at the other day, so I know that. And uh, then from the Dairy Bee up Golf Hill, which ranges from 5 to 9%. The middle section's about 5. The first section's about 7. The last section's 8, right at 9 at the top. So there's your grade, if you mm-hmm. wonder. And uh, then I would go around the block on top of the hill which is a couple more little climbs, and then back down to the Dairy Bee and back up. And you'd stop at Dairy Bee and get a shake every time? No, no, (laughs) I don't do that. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, occasionally. Yeah. 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 But anyway, Stacy labeled that the id because I kept doing that in training for some of these other rides. Well, you know, I start, I'd do maybe 10 ids. That's Mm -hmm. 10 laps up Golf Hill. And I think Stacy was involved in this, challenging me and, you know, making this a little more and a little more and a little more. Well, last year, um, I actually did 50 Eds, and that was 10,480 feet of climbing and 89 miles. Uh, and then I finished back at my house, So, but I did 50 laps up there. And that's quite that's a pretty healthy workout. That's uh, that would I guess would be more climbing than Opawapu and oh yeah and less distance. Yeah, it's about the same, maybe as six gap, a little bit less. It's the same as uh, triple bypass, uh, and you know, but yeah, I, it was ten thousand, I think, four hundred eighty feet of climbing, and eighty nine miles from the time I left the house to back to the house. So. But a heck of a training ride. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can do that, you can ride about anything. So, yeah. yeah. What, uh, what's on the horizon? Do you have any plans for uh, future rides? Well, or? this year has been a pretty bad year, Phil. Uh, yeah. I, I had a wreck. I've had numerous wrecks, obviously. Yep. Uh, mostly dog. But this year, out on your road, on February the 5th, I was, it was cold, 
I was riding. Well, you know how rough that road was. Yep. And now they've actually patched it. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I had my road bike. If I'd have had my gravel bike, I'd have been okay, I think. But uh, my glasses were fogging up. It was cold. So, whoops, excuse me. So I'm messing with my glasses and I hit a little rut, a little seam, who knows what, and I lost my front wheel, Whew. you know, and I'm down. Uh, well, I had a seroma on my right hip and a, about a 10-inch bruise on it. Just had cut my eyebrow and destroyed my glasses and helmet. I hurt my right shoulder, but not really severely bad, not bad enough that I went to an orthopedic guy. And uh, three weeks later, then I started walking, okay? And I'll more about that in a little bit. But uh, three weeks later, I was walking, and I was walking from my house to Jody's, the coffee shop, which is my second home, and, uh, and I slipped on black ice. It was another really bad decision. My friends tell me that I'm really good at bad decisions, and uh, I was walking on the road, and the road was okay. It was wet. And the sidewalk going down Garland, I thought, well, I'll jump over on the sidewalk. And I thought, well, it might have a little ice. But I did it anyway. Now, that's dumb. And so I went over there, and three or four steps, whew, and, man, I went down hard. Well, that time I had to go to the orthopedic shoulder guy and I completely tore a rotator cuff and uh, he was stunned that I could do what I can do just because of the musculature that I use all the time I mean you know I'm cutting wood or I'm hauling manure or I'm building fence I mean you know, on the farm I work mm -hmm. all the time but anyway I mean it hurt and there are certain movements that just feels like a knife going into your shoulder and uh Last week at Jody's, I, I had partially got the right shoulder. Well, I just reached something or something real fast, and I think I tore the rest of it. So now I got them both. And on the bike, I rode 24 miles last night, and it hurts. I mean, it, it, it really hurts, just the ache in the shoulders. Uh, and surgery on them, ties you up for three months. Well, I haven't got time for that. We had lambs coming. I had to deliver sheep, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think I can rehab it, but it's it's going to take time. So aggressive rides probably aren't in my near future. But I started walking. Russell had a challenge of walking a mile a day. Right now, I've walked 117 miles this year on 109 days. And uh, I, again, I'll compete with myself. Yeah. I mean, I started, I was so bad. And, of course, you know, I got some arthritis in my knees uh, just from being bow-legged. Three years ago, I was ready to have a knee replacement, but I've rehabbed them to probably 90% now. It's almost a miracle. And uh, so I'll rehab the shoulders. It's just going to take time. Mm -hmm. But... I started out walking like 18, 19 minutes a mile. Last week, I walked to Jody's in 12 minutes and 21 seconds a mile. 
And it, that is, uh, that's probably my, my running pace. <laughs> well, I did have to cheat a little bit because I, uh, now you might call it a jog down the hill. Okay. I would call it a fast shuffle. I'm not sure I would qualify. That's for what my running looks like is a fast <laughs> yeah. shuffle. Yeah. I mean, if you saw my form, you wouldn't yeah. want to say it's a jog, but I think it was a fast shuffle. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, what was amazing about that, now I wear a brace on my right knee when I do that, but I, I just stunned myself that I could do that. Uh, my previous best on strictly walking like a speed walk was 15 minutes and nine seconds. And then I did this in 1221. And uh, the nice, the wonderful thing about it was that I had an average heart rate for that three miles of 144 a minute. And for somebody my age, I did not think I could sustain, I didn't think I could sustain 144 a minute for that long. I can't do that on the bike. That's a better workout than I get on the bike. Because on the bike, when you go downhill, you dog it no matter mm-hmm. who you are. Yep. And to be able to sustain 144 for that distance, I mean, I was pretty proud of myself. Because every year you age, you lose one maximum heartbeat a minute. So I'm 76 now. Uh, heart rate shouldn't be over about 145 max. And yet I sustained 104. That's from just being in shape, Mm -hmm. basically, and conditioning that heart over the years. Well, and I was going to say that for all the so-called ill-advised decisions, um, I think it served you really well. I mean, obviously, you've stayed in really good shape and and in good health um, for a really long time. And, and, you know, I can't say that I, you know, that I'm uh, um, in anywhere near as good as the of shape as, as you are. Um, and I really have no excuses, but, uh, so some of those, so although you, uh, maybe push the, the limits a little bit, I, I think it's probably been a pretty big net gain for you. Well, you, you gotta be consistent and you gotta be disciplined. And I've got a lot of discipline when it comes to exercising or forcing myself to exercise. But talking about health, uh, I don't have good genetics. And uh, I've been on a statin, Lipitor, since I was 40 years old uh, from high cholesterol. Well, a few years ago, uh, Dave Martin passed away. He was a runner. I don't know if you knew Dave or not uh, here in town. And I thought, well, you know, if Dave could do that, I could do it because he was an athlete. He was a runner. So I went and had a coronary calcium test done. Uh, which measures the amount of plaque in your heart. And my result came back 740. Excessive is 100 to 400. Well, I get a registered letter from the hospital, see your doctor yesterday, if not sooner. So I went, they sent me to St. Luke's Cardiology, and they ran every test in the book on me. And the way he explained it was that Basically, your lifestyle has saved your life. He said, you have put so much stress on your heart that you've either laid that plaque outside of the vessels, uh, but not in the middle or the inside, and or you've rechannelized around it. And his advice was, go ride your bike. So I think he said, 
if you didn't have that lifestyle, you probably would have had your chest split open or been dead years ago. So there you go. Yep. Well, we've been going uh, a little over an hour. Um, let's do uh, let's do share your nugget. So what's your um, what's your advice for my yeah my my advice is uh, uh, life can be a mess, and I want to analyze what a mess is and what a mess is telling us. The M says move. And I totally believe, as you've heard from my story, you got to move. You got to keep moving. No matter what condition is part of your life adventure, you got to move. Whether it's arthritic knee, whether it's a broken shoe on a bike, uh, I'm a total believer you've got to move to keep your life from being a mess. If you got cancer, you still got to move. and life certainly isn't fair. Uh, everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. But no matter what your circumstance, I believe you got to move. Uh, e stands for eating proper. And we all know how to, we're supposed to eat. I mean, it's no big secret. And yet very few people have the discipline to do that. Now, I do eat pretty proper. I'm a huge gardener. We're eating asparagus now almost every day. and uh, But eating, very important also. Mess, the S, uh, stands for sleep. And I'm a sleeper. You've got to be able to get good quality sleep. And, uh, you know, so many people, including my wife, have sleep problems. And you need to get that taken care of because sleep, is really important to keep you out of a mess in life. And the other S, the most important one of all, is social interaction. Um, You've got to be socially interactive. You've got to be involved with people, no matter whether that's your church or bicycle group or whatever. You've got to be socially interactive. And this is something, these things are... Uh, now, mess is my word, but mm-hmm. all those things are known scientifically. And the difficult, there's some difficulty for all of us in doing these things, okay? For me, I have a hearing issue. The rheumatic fever damaged my ears when I was two and a half years old, and I've never been able to hear really well. Now, thank God for amazing hearing aids, but even them, my brain has lost the ability to hear certain sounds. If you start a word with a T, I will never hear it. I can't hear it. Pam has to spell it or give me the T sign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, P's are a little that way and some others, but my brain lost the ability to process those sounds. So... The natural tendency with hearing loss is to withdraw. I never went to theater. I never went to shows because I could never hear. I would refuse to talk on the telephone until my new hearing aids because I couldn't hear anybody. And Pam would have to talk to everybody. 
Well, that's why hearing loss is one of the major causes of dementia. One of the leading causes is hearing loss. So I fight that. I counteract that by trying to be socially interactive. Now, as I said, thank God for hearing aids, the new technology, fantastic. I can hear on the phone as well as I'm hearing you right now. Mm-hmm. And only because they're Bluetooth right into the hearing aids. And uh, But I work at it really hard. Uh, that's the main reason I go to the coffee shop three or four times a week. <laughs> because people that I... Um, were my clients, you know, I retired 14 years ago, and you just don't see people anymore after that. But down there, I see people come in that I get to visit with that used to be my clients and all the time. So I'm trying to stay socially interactive because of all those things I said in mass, that's the most important one. That will increase longevity more than any of the rest. You can have a bad diet, uh, you know, you can eat bad, you can not sleep, uh, but if you're socially interactive, you'll make up for a lot of that. That's it. I love it, Ed. I think that's uh, that's really good. <clears throat> <clears throat> mess keeps you out of, out of life's mess a little bit, right? Exactly. All right. Well, thanks again for coming. Uh, thanks for like, having me. You're, I mean, uh, like, uh, you're super inspirational to me, and I think... Uh, a lot of people, just the fact that that uh, that you keep going, um, maybe at a time of life where a lot of folks um, have just uh, decided to to you know sit on the couch. So, oh, um, I'll, I'll I'll always keep going. I'll rehab these shoulders. I'll be on. I'm already back on the bike, just not quite as aggressively. Yep. All right, thank you for thank having you. me. Thank you. Have a good one. This episode of Nuggets and Verse was recorded in the hayloft of our beloved Red Barn, just outside of historic Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Be kind and share your nugget.